Christians under attack by ISIS being told to convert to Islam or die. The Islamic State posting the cold-blooded execution of 21 Christians in Libya earlier last month. But this is only one of many atrocities being committed against one of the most ancient communities in the Middle East. And now Jay Sekulow, author of the book The Rise of ISIS, out last fall, is telling Congress there is no time to waste in saving Christians from the ISIS terrorists. He's also chief counsel for the American Center for Law and Justice back in Franklin, Tennessee. And Jay, welcome back here to America's hey, Bill, thanks 20, for me. 24 pages of testimony. What's the reality in that part of the world? The reality is there's a, the effect of a 9-11 every single day in the Middle East. I mean, you're looking at uh, thousands, and some days it's much more than 3,000 people being killed every day, executed, beheaded, crucified. That doesn't include the number of people that are being sold into slavery. Uh, this is an ongoing problem for women and for young girls. So you've got a situation right now where the international community uh, has to start engaging this issue, not just militarily. But One point you make is that in these countries where Christians are persecuted, Muslims are being persecuted as well. I mean, it, 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 yes. it, it's working both ways here. Oh, it is. I mean, look at the situation uh, where you've got, basically, if you don't agree with the radical jihadist theology of ISIS and you're a Muslim, you're equally subject. To, they are an equal opportunity killer in that sense, Bill. They, they kill... It's not indiscriminate because if you're a follower of theirs, obviously they don't. But if you don't follow their exact line of thought and exact line of theology and their political jihadist motivation, then you're subject to death. And they view you as an infidel. So a Muslim, of course, is viewed as, as an infidel. The problem here is the magnitude and the capacity for these groups, now with Boko Haram uh, engaged. Bill, I don't call them terrorists anymore. These are jihadist armies. And you look at Boko Haram, you look at Hamas. You look at, uh, of course, uh, ISIS, and you realize that what we have right now is probably upwards of 50, 60, maybe 75,000 jihadist troops in the region killing and wiping out entire religious communities. And I mean, that have been around for the Christian communities since the beginning of Christendom and being completely wiped out. Well, good morning, everyone. It's no uh, secret we live in turbulent times, uh, dangerous times, times of great unrest and even civil war in many regions of the world. And according to Johnny Moore, author of Defying ISIS, a Christian genocide is underway in the Middle East. The radical Islamic group known as ISIS is beheading believers, enslaving women and children, destroying churches in plain sight. They are taking down the Christian cross and replacing it with the black flag of the Islamic State all an attempt to wage global jihad against the people of the cross. That's what they call Christians, followers of Jesus like you and me who live in the Middle East. In February, the attention of the world was riveted on a piece of deserted beach in northern Libya where a group of 21 Coptic Christians were slaughtered by Islamic jihadists from uh, ISIS. And when they refused to convert to their twisted version of militant Islam, all 21 Christians were brutally beheaded with these final words on their lips, Jesus is Lord. And in the wake of that mass slaughter, ISIS released a gruesome video entitled, A Message Signed with Blood to the Nation of the Cross, which is ISIS's reference to Christian America. The ISIS virus has spread from Iraq and Syria to Asia and Africa, now washing up on the shores of Europe and in the, here in the United States. In January, 11 French people were killed in the Charlie Hedbo massacre in Paris. And last week in Texas, in fact, on Sunday, ISIS claimed responsibility for the shooting attack at a cartoon contest 
featuring images of the Prophet Muhammad. It's reportedly the first attack by ISIS on U.S. soil, and they vowed there's much more to come. Well, today we kick off a two-part message series called ISIS, Islam, and Jesus to specifically ask, well, how should modern-day Christians like you and I respond to the horrific persecution we see reported in the nightly news? And I'm calling this message People of the Cross. If you look in your program notes, there's some to follow along with. And the question really for us is, who exactly is ISIS? What are their goals? And then what is their message to people of the cross? As Christians, followers of Jesus, what is our response to them? Not as the nation of America, but as people of the cross, the church of Jesus. That's an important distinction. Let me make that. This is not a series about politics or foreign policy. Should we drop bombs, send drones, you know, invade with troops, that sort of thing? That's for the government and leaders to debate. Rather, this is a series about theology or, or the study of God, specifically what ISIS believes about God in the end times, because their view of the coming apocalypse is what drives their barbaric agenda. And that should matter to us as Christians, because in a lot of ways, this is kind of a wake-up call for us as a church, because today, on Sunday, many of our brothers and sisters in the Middle East are suffering deeply. Thousands of Christians fleeing persecution. And ISIS has the world's 2 billion Christians in its crosshairs, including in nearly all of its Muslims and Jews as well. And the question for us is, well, how should we respond as Christians? I mean, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is not a time to be quiet or disengaged. Don't think, well, this is an uncomfortable topic. I'm going to stick my head in the sand and ignore it. Radical Islamic extremism is the great struggle of our time. And Christians around the world need our help today. So if you are a Christian, I want you to put your thinking cap on and lean in. And if you're visiting today and you're Muslim as the lead pastor, man, I'm glad you're here. You are most welcome at Liquid Church. We're a safe place to learn about Christianity, what it means to authentically follow Jesus, who said this to his disciples. Love your enemies, Jesus said. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. So as Christians, we're called to love. Love of God, love of each other, love of our neighbors, even love of our enemies. So this includes people from every religious background. So if you come from a different spiritual background, know that we love you. We really do. We've been actually praying for you. We're thrilled you're here. And if you have someone in your family who's from a Muslim background, just understand, we mean you no harm or offense. I have good news for you. The people at this church are smart, most of us. Most, most of us are smart enough to understand ISIS does not represent the vast majority of the world's over 1 billion Muslims. We understand this is a group of radicalized extremists, and we, you don't lump moderate Muslims in with them. To be fair, if somebody said, well, does ISIS represent, you know, Islam? Like, is this what Muslims are? You might reply, well, I don't know. Does the KKK represent Christians? Is that the same thing? Never fall for the trap of taking the worst elements of a perverted ideology and hold them up as an emblem who represents the whole. ISIS doesn't represent the majority of the world's Muslims in the same way that the Ku Klux Klan doesn't represent the majority of Christians. Both are radical terror groups that thrive on hatred, violence, and outright murder. And the truth is this. ISIS is a group of radical fascist fundamentalists who have killed more Muslims than anybody, Jews and Christians combined. And they deserve our combined condemnation. So it's important for the church, when I say church, capital C, global church, to kind of wake up and understand what's happening and how we can respond as people of the cross in this crisis of our time. 
So everybody needs to kind of buckle up, put your seatbelt on. I'm going to give you a lot of information today. And one heads up to parents before we start, as your campus pastor mentioned, this message is PG-13. This is a serious adult conversation. It's in, very intense and graphic in some parts. Uh, I have a 12-year-old, 11-year-old. I said, you guys are going to the kids program today. So if you haven't already, take the opportunity to drop your children at Liquid Kids for the next 30 minutes or so. We have a wonderful program for kids 8th grade and younger. Just see an usher in the lobby. They'll be happy to escort you to the kids area. So let's dive in. Because a lot of people watch the nightly news and they see ISIS mentioned or see this crisis in the Middle East and they say, hey, is this a sign of the end times? Like, is the last days the end of the world? As Graham Wood pointed out in his excellent article in the Atlantic, what ISIS really wants, he says, the Islamic State is no mere collection of psychopaths. It is a religious group with carefully considered beliefs, among them that it is a key agent of the coming apocalypse. In other words, ISIS sees themselves as a key player in the imminent end of the world. According to their interpretation of the Quran and Hadithic sayings by the prophet, they believe their number one job in life is to bring about the final battle between the armies of Islam and the armies of the cross, of Rome. That actually includes all infidels. That's Christians, Jews, Buddhists, apostate Muslims, Hindus. So to understand ISIS, you actually have to understand their eschatology. That's a fancy word for what do you believe about the end times? And what's interesting is the book you hold in your hands, the, the Christian Bible, is not silent on that subject. In fact, in Matthew 24, first book of the New Testament in the Christian Bible, we're told that Jesus' own disciples came to him one day, to ask him about this. You can flip there in your Bible or follow along on, stream, on screen. Here's what Matthew says. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? In other words, Jesus, what's your eschatology? And Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I'm the Messiah, and will deceive many. And then he says, you're actually here of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Don't freak out. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. And then he says this in verse 7, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Are we seeing that? Yes. There will be famines and what? Earthquakes. Are we seeing that? Yes, in Nepal most recently. He said, all these are the beginning of birth pains. In other words, this is not the end. This is actually the beginning. What will happen next? Jesus tells his followers, then you will be handed over to be, what's the word? Persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. According to Jesus, what's the great sign of the end times? One of the key signs is the persecution of believers that were living in the last days before the return of Jesus. And what's scary is that ISIS believes this too. That is one of the reasons they are systematically persecuting, beheading, stoning, and yes, even crucifying Christian believers throughout the Middle East. This picture of a crucified man is not from 2,000 years ago. It's two months ago in modern-day Mosul, Iraq. Let me level set this with a few quick facts about ISIS. You might be, what's ISIS even stand for? ISIS stands for the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, what they call Al-Sham. And you can see from this map here, 
In yellow, you'll see Syria and Iraq, but that huge red area represents the territory right now under ISIS control. It is larger than the United Kingdom. It starts at Aleppo in Syria, goes all the way over to Mosul in northern Iraq, down to Tikrit, the hometown of Saddam Hussein. Fallujah, which once American forces occupied, is now a stronghold, and it sits on the outskirts of Baghdad. And it is ironic that ISIS is based in Iraq and Syria because those two countries are the cradle of civilization. This is the birthplace of Christianity. In Genesis, first book of the Bible, we're told that the Garden of Eden was located between two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. Where is that? Modern-day Iraq. And for the last 2,000 years, both Iraq and Syria had a thriving community of Christians who coexisted very peacefully alongside the Muslim majority. And yet today, ISIS is systematically cleansing the land of Christians, Jews and religious minorities with this stark choice. You convert or die. That's what they told these Christians in the city of Mosul. Mosul is the second largest city actually in Iraq, about 1.8 million people. It's emptied out to about 900,000 now. It is an ISIS base of operations. And guess what? The Bible you hold in your hand mentions it. Not the modern name Mosul. It's the biblical city of Nineveh where the prophet Jonah preached in the Old Testament. In fact, Jonah's tomb remained a symbol of that city's spiritual heritage until ISIS actually blew it to smithereens last July. But that same month, ISIS militants notified every Christian living in Mosul that they must convert to Islam or face death by the sword. So those who refused to convert and pay a religious tax would be beheaded. And what ISIS did is at that moment is they fanned out across the city and went home to home, knocking on doors and learning where the Christians live. And if you're a Christian living in Mosul, they spray-painted this sign on your door, on your business. It is the Arabic letter N. It means Nazara or Nazarene. You follow Jesus of Nazareth. You are a Christian, and you are now marked for death. Understand, this is today. Just as the Nazis used the Star of David to mark Jewish homes and businesses for the Holocaust, ISIS is using the symbol N, Christian, to mark believers for persecution and death. That day, Christians began fleeing Iraq by the thousands. Approximately one million of Iraq's Christians have been driven from the country under threat of beheading, kidnapping, rape, and torture. And you may be like, where did ISIS come from? I mean, two years ago, no one had even heard of ISIS, and now they're in headline news on a daily basis. ISIS was actually born out of the ashes of Al-Qaeda. They were actually kicked out of Al-Qaeda for being too violent. How violent do you have to be to get kicked out of Al-Qaeda? After eight years of war in Iraq, American troops pretty much decimated Al-Qaeda, bin Laden, really left only the most battle-hardened survivors and warriors and inmates. And Sunni Muslims, who were very hostile towards the Americans and Shia government in Iraq, they splintered off and they began beheading Christians. And they were kicked out of Al-Qaeda because they said, that's too extreme. Now, think about this. Their leader is a guy by the name of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. You can say that three times fast. And during the occupation of Iraq, al-Baghdadi was actually imprisoned by U.S. forces at Camp Bukha. But he's not some simple-minded thug. He has a Ph.D. He is an Islamic scholar and he's very calculating. And so last July, he stepped into the pulpit of the Grand Mosque in Mosul to deliver a sermon like I'm doing, in which he declared the establishment 
of the global caliphate. That's, a, that's, a ter- that's the Islamic state. I'm declaring a new state. And he declared himself the caliph or the leader. And in a single sermon, Baghdadi went from hunted jihadist to commander-in-chief of all Muslims around the world. Now understand, the majority, the vast majority of the world's one billion Muslims reject his leadership. Nonetheless, the rise of ISIS has been stunning. After Baghdadi's one sermon, a stream of foreign fighters began flowing into Syria with fresh motivation. They went from 800 jihadists to over 40,000 soldiers today. Most estimates are put them up closer to 70,000. And the territory that they control is larger than Great Britain. Their goal is to establish a caliphate or a kingdom, an Islamic state that's ruled over by the caliph who is seen as a spiritual successor to the, United, to the uh, prophet Muhammad. Now, here's the key. Obeying Sharia law is the key mark of the caliphate. See, ISIS's theology is based on a very legalistic reading of the Quran and strict enforcement of Sharia law, which includes stonings, slavery, and amputations. So if a child steals, he gets his hand cut off. This is radical Islam. The word radical actually means roots. And the goal of ISIS is to take Islam back to medieval times, back to its roots, 7th century Sharia. Very primitive and medieval in outlook. They're forbidden to wear Western clothing, shave your beard, drink alcohol, vote in election. In fact, as Caliph, Baghdadi has called on all Muslims around the world to immigrate, actually, to Syria or Iraq to help defend the caliphate. It's seen as a call of duty or a holy obligation. And jihadists around the world have heard that call, and they're flowing in daily, most of them from Arab countries and from Asia, as well as parts of Europe. This is Musa Serantonio. He's a 30-year-old Australian young man, and he's a jihadist reported to be one of the Islamic State's most influential recruiters. See, the majority are disaffected young men who are bored, they're living in poverty, lacking purpose, wanting to be part of something successful and spectacular. And they're often exposed to ISIS ideology first online via social media, YouTube, Twitter, very slick videos and propaganda that ISIS uses to recruit youth. And their promise is, we offer jihad. Struggle, danger, death, a very dark, strong emotional appeal to men who feel alienated from Western culture. And that's why you're seeing these spasms of violence in Europe and France and Spain and Germany as Muslim youth kind of drink this Kool-Aid of jihad. Is ISIS Islamic? The religion of ISIS can't accurately be described as mainstream Islam. It is apocalyptic Islam that embraces jihad above all else. They reject peace. Jihad means struggle. They believed armed violence is their sacred duty. They have a hunger for genocide. That is, they believe it is their job to cleanse the world of Christians, Jews, and infidels. That's apostate Muslims. Anyone who refuses to convert and live under Sharia law. And they see themselves as agents of the apocalypse. They see themselves as the central character in Allah's script to bring about the end of the world. Their job is to create the conditions for the end of the world, which is global carnage and chaos. They believe that will usher in the appearance of the Mahdi, the Islamic Messiah. Again, ISIS does not represent the more than 1 billion Muslims around the world. They may represent just 1% overall. But 1% of 1 billion is a lot of people. What's their number one target? You may be surprised to know that it's other Muslims. 
Most ISIS members are Sunni, which means there are 200 million Shia Muslims they have marked for death. That includes the head of state of every Muslim country, including Jordan and Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, they cut off hands, they do public executions, and ISIS said, still too lax for us. They are considered apostate for elevating man-made law above Sharia law or negotiating with the West. Understand, ISIS will never negotiate with a foreign government because they don't recognize governments or borders or diplomacy in any way. You would be recognizing an authority that's greater than Allah. So just to show you how extreme ISIS is, here's a list of groups they consider apostate. The Taliban, Hamas, the Muslim Brotherhood, because they participated in secular elections and foreign diplomacy. And they say they're not real Muslims, they should die. The second target is Jews. ISIS demands the wholesale destruction of the state of Israel, which is what makes its presence in Syria right above it as so dangerous because it runs right up against the border of the Jewish state. And then, of course, Christians, who they refer to simply as people of the cross. ISIS has officially proclaimed they will not stop until the cult of Christianity is wiped from the earth, from the land of its birth, all the way to Europe, all the way to our own backyard here in America. Abu Muhammad al-Adani, he's the official spokesman of ISIS. They actually have a press secretary. And he called all Muslims to jihad with these words. He says, oh, believer, don't let this battle pass you by wherever you may be. You must strike the soldiers, patrons, and troops of the tyrants, strike their police, their security, and the intelligence members. If you can kill a disbelieving American or European, French, or an Australian, or a Canadian, or any other disbeliever from the disbelievers waging war, including the citizens of the countries that entered into a coalition against the Islamic State, then rely upon Allah and kill him. Rely upon Allah, kill him in any manner or way, however it may be. And then they just give some uh, examples. Smash his head with a rock, or slaughter him with a knife, or run him over with your car, or throw him down from a high place, or choke him, or poison him. This is the official press secretary of the Islamic State. See, the, the Western media, we typically, were so cynical and skeptical, we're like, what are they really saying? ISIS tells you exactly what they're saying and what they're going to do. And I understand this sounds like crazy talk to our Western ears. Like, why are we talking about like this poisonous insanity? Let me tell you why. Today, you and I are sitting in comfortable chairs, in a, a comfortable auditorium, in a comfortable church on a Sunday morning. It's the Christian Sabbath. And we, you know what? We have air conditioning. We have lunch, we have family time planned. But let me tell you three things that Christian families in Syria, like this one, will experience today on Sunday. What does Sunday look like for the persecuted church? Today in Iraq and Syria, they will behead believers, primarily Christian men who will not renounce Jesus and convert to Islam. Again, this surprises and shocks us here in the West, but go back to the Bible. John plainly told us that Jesus said to his disciples, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they're what? Offering a service to God. And they will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. ISIS began beheading with Western journalists from Asia and Europe and then America, and then 21 Coptic Christians in Libya, and then dozens of Ethiopian Christians the same way, actually filming the execution of African believers who refuse to deny their faith in Christ. This happens 
every single day. 3,000 people die. A 9-11 every single day. Media posts say individual executions occur daily, mass executions every few weeks. So understand right now as we sit here in relative comfort and enjoy freedom to worship Jesus, understand that we have brothers and sisters on the other side of the world who are literally risking their life to even speak the name Jesus Christ. I, I'm Nasara. I follow the Nazarene. I'm a Christian. If you said those words today in Mosul, they would tell you to put on one of these. This is the orange jumpsuit that ISIS gives to every Christian who they have marked for death. It is a way to resurrect the memory of Abu Ghraib, and so they use these orange jumpsuits. And I'm going to put this on because to me, I grew up in the United States. I live in a comfortable place here in New Jersey, and once in a while, I need a reminder. I need a wake-up call that the church isn't just us, that every time the church of Jesus gathers, it actually transcends countries and, and nationalities and borders. And the Bible says when one part of the body of Christ suffers, we all suffer. We're all supposed to feel it. And I don't know about you, but I need that reminder. I need a wake-up call every now and then. Because today in Iraq, ISIS militants will not only behead male Christians, they will enslave the women. Whenever ISIS invades a village, they separate the women and children, and wives and mothers are then sold as sexual slaves on the black market. You wouldn't believe it unless you saw it with your own eyes, so I'll show you. This is a modern-day slave market in ISIS-controlled Mosul. The fighters there joke about the women they'll buy and abuse and repeatedly rape. They treat them as animals. They're bartered over, sometimes traded. ISIS often gives women as a concubine or reward to their best fighters on the front line. And the slave markets even have price lists, as you can see, based on age. Who gets the highest price? Females between the ages of 5 and 10. Because they're young. And presumably can be impregnated again and again to give birth to a new generation of jihadists. All this takes place in broad daylight. Last year, 5,000 Yazidi women were kidnapped to serve as concubines for ISIS fighters. This man is a holding a picture of the eight females in his family who were kidnapped. It's very ironic because for jihadists who consider themselves holy warriors, holy, sexual abuse and rape is common practice. ISIS doesn't just behead male believers, they scar women and children for life. So ladies, moms, listen, there is no place on the planet more dangerous to be a woman than in Iraq and Syria right now. And then there are the children. I'm a father, and right now my kids, your kids are in our family ministry program, and they're reading the Bible, they're learning how to love Jesus and, and serve the world, but over there on Sunday, Christian children experience a different fate. Militants brutally behead four Christian children in Iraq, all of them under the age of 15. The leader of the Anglican Church in Baghdad says it's because they wouldn't denounce Jesus and then convert to Islam. So where is the global outrage on this? Joining us now is Fox News religion contributor, Father Jonathan Morris. Hey, good morning. Morning. So it's obviously emotional for us to hear about anything um, going on, anyone being beheaded, whether they're American mm. journalists, British journalists, but then when you hear children. Yeah, four children under the age of 15 who are being asked, do you denounce Jesus? Will you denounce Jesus? 
supposedly that if they say yes, well, then they're let go. And first of all, something to celebrate. These, these children loved God enough to say, I'm not going to um, betray my faith. And they died. It's tragic. It's also, in my opinion, it's a beautiful sign of love and faith that helps me want to be a better man and to be a, a better follower of Jesus. But what I would like to see is our president and other leaders stand up, international leaders, and keep reminding us of what's going on. You know, it goes in, it goes in waves. You hear it for about, you know, two, three days when there's enough outrage coming from the people. But how about leadership to say, this is what we need to con continue to do as an international community, instead of just sitting back and letting us get the news from other people like the leader of the Anglican Church in this case. But you see this all over the region and all over the world, from Nigeria to Syria. You see Christians being persecuted so what do we, for their faith. So what do we do, Tucker? Just be quiet? Don't well, talk about it? they're not a favored it? group right now. So it's considered on the left, it's like, yeah, whatever. That, that's not a headline. Well, I would like to, to hear, I would like leadership from, from, from our president. I would like leadership from other international leaders to stand up and say, remind us what's going on. It's very, it's very easy just to sit back and say, we're going to send a few bombs and then we're going to get off and we're not going to talk about it until the people start talking about it again. That's why I'm so glad we're doing segments like this, bringing it to the forefront and bringing it to the, to the consciences um, of our leaders. Guys, this is primal evil. Understand, the faith of ISIS is not Islamic. It is satanic. And as a parent, it's impossible to imagine the anguish and the trauma from, uh, of parents from seeing your children martyred. And our prayers are with the, the parents who instilled such strong faith in their kids that they actually chose to die for Christ rather than renounce their faith. That's a challenge to me as a Christian living in America. I mean, would I do that? I mean, I thank God we don't face that kind of persecution here. But is my faith in Jesus strong enough to stand up to that kind of evil? Because on Sunday mornings, most of us kind of just struggle just to barely make it to church, let alone to stand up to such savagery. But for our brothers and sisters in the Middle East, understand faith is a literally a matter of life and death. Isaac goes to every door and they ask Christian children to denounce Jesus. And if that child converts, he's enlisted on the spot as a child soldier, brainwashed, trained for jihad, suicide bombings. And if the kids don't denounce Christ, they're slaughtered on the spot. Last year, estimates in Syria, 10,000 Christian children. Guys, this is a wake-up call for the Western church. Our brothers and sisters in the Middle East are suffering, and you and I cannot be silent. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who stood up to the Nazis in World War II, he famously said, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. And you and I must speak up boldly with courage and moral clarity in a politically correct generation. I understand there are people who say, hey, you know, this is, this is a touchy subject. Don't offend. Don't ruffle anyone's feathers. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to let the forces of PC political correctness keep me quiet while I have brothers and sisters dying daily for their faith. While we enjoy, yeah, while we enjoy the freedom, we have freedom today to worship Jesus. They take their life in their hands to be known as PC people of the cross, and we're honored to stand with them. Amen? They deserve our prayers, our voices, and our support in their moment of testing. So you lift your voice. You speak out. You actually tell others and learn how you can make an impact. I mean, how do you make an impact in the wake of such overwhelming evil? 
That's what we'll learn next Sunday when we hear from Johnny Moore, who is the author of Defying ISIS, Preserving Christianity in the Place of Its Birth and in Your Own Backyard. Johnny is flying to Liquid to speak live to our congregation. He is rapidly becoming one of America's leading spokespersons for the persecuted church. I read Defying ISIS last week. It is riveting. It is heartbreaking. And he tells the firsthand accounts of what Christians are going through. His book's endorsed by Eric Metaxas, among others. And I talked to Johnny last week. He is pumped to fly to New Jersey and speak here at Liquid. Because he understands we're a church that wants to be culturally engaged. Like, how do you read the times? Here's how you do it. You read it with the Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. And to prepare you for Johnny's visit, we're giving every one of you here a free chapter of his book today. We printed the download link actually in your program. It's lqd.ch backslash ISIS. It's in your program. Just enter that short code in your browser when you go home and you can read that free chapter this week. But next Sunday, Johnny's going to discuss very practical ways that we can support and be a voice for our brothers and sisters in the Middle East. He'll give us eyewitness accounts of what Christians are going through right now in Syria. Understand Syria is the cradle of Christianity. Syria was the place where the word Christian was used for the first time in history 2,000 years ago. Damascus was the city where Paul preached his first sermon after his conversion on the road to Damascus. See, before Christianity came to us in the West, it came in the East. It was an Eastern movement, and it's being destroyed before our very eyes. Syria was once famous for its 2 million Christians who spoke Aramaic. Now they're toppling the church crosses, putting up the black flag of ISIS. They spoke the dialect that Jesus himself spoke. And Syria has more Christian monasteries and holy sites than anywhere in the world, which is one of the reasons it's being targeted by ISIS and ripped to shreds. This is Damascus now. Once famous for thousands of Christians, it's in ruins. Building and homes reduced to rubble. People fleeing by the thousands to refugee camps. Syria is as bleak as any place on the planet right now. And ISIS has one intended goal. Eradicating Christianity from the face of the earth in the region of its birth. The goal is a modern day holocaust. To ethnically cleanse the land and eventually the world of Christians, Jews, and any other infidel who won't bow to their toxic ideology. Guys, this is the defining struggle of our generation. A once in a thousand years threat to Christianity is being waged before our watching eyes. And the question is, will the church stay silent or will we stand up and speak up like the people of the cross, those martyrs on the beach? You know, it was sickening this week to research and watch many of these ISIS videos, and I strongly recommend you don't. But as I watched those 21 Coptic Christians being marched across that beach to the site of their beheading, I noticed something very moving. Just before their throats were cut, many of the murdered Christians could be seen praying, mouthing the words, Jesus is Lord. Jesus, Lord, is what they were mouthing, which is what the early Christian martyrs would say. They would be put to their knees and said, say, Caesar is Lord. And they'd say, no, Jesus Curios, Jesus is Lord. And then they'd be decapitated. And that's what those 21 Ethiopian Christians said. Last words on their lips, Jesus is Lord. They knew exactly what they were doing. They were defying ISIS, incredibly brave and revealing. Because Jesus is Lord asserts that no matter what you throw at me, I worship one king. And it is Jesus who rules over a kingdom. Not a political, not a geographical kingdom like the caliphate, but a caliphate of the human heart. And he rules actually through peace, not violence. As opposed to the sword, Jesus says, 
I forgive my enemies from a cross. We're people of the cross. In other words, the Christian God reverses roles with his attackers. The one with power doesn't use violence and terror to conquer his enemies. Rather, he forgives them through sacrifice, love, and divine grace. And that's why these men will receive a martyr's reward in heaven. I'm not talking 72 virgins for cowardly killing somebody, but a reward from Jesus himself. In the final book of the Bible, Revelation, when heaven's curtain gets pulled back, look what the apostle John says he saw. John says, I saw the souls of those who had been what? Beheaded because of their testimony about who? Jesus. I want you to imagine this. 2,000 years ago, God envisioned the day when these Christian martyrs would be beheaded for refusing to renounce their faith in Christ. And we're witnessing it in our lifetime. They are truly people of the cross. And they have that courage because of the hope of resurrection. They're lifting their crosses high for the whole world to see. But it's saying, in the face of religious hatred and persecution and torture and death, we will not renounce our faith in Jesus because we saw him give his life for us. And we trust him to ultimately bring victory and justice when he returns. The way of Jesus is greater than the way of jihad. Amen? These are the modern martyrs of the persecuted church in the 21st century. That book you hold in your hands. What we're reading today was written in the first century, the majority of it in the New Testament. And in the book of Romans, Paul wrote to the martyrs, the early martyrs, the persecuted church in the first century. Christians were being jailed, beheaded, crucified for sport. And what did Paul write? You know what Paul said? He said, I face death every day. And he encouraged persecuted Christians with these words in Romans. He said, who shall separate us? From the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or what? Sword. As it's written, for your sake, God, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. This is the first century. Now, he says, and all these things we are what? More than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, Paul says, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. How are we conquerors in the face of such evil? The cross of Jesus says that the love of God is stronger than death itself. And the resurrection of Christ shows that nothing can separate us. Not violence, not war, not genocide, not terror attacks, not even ISIS. Nothing can separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ. And that is so hopeful. Think about this. Paul, amen. You have hope for that. Paul wrote these words to the persecuted church 2,000 years ago. And then he was beheaded in Rome. 2,015 years later, Evil men are still beheading and, yes, crucifying Christians in Iraq and Syria. And the love of Jesus continues to triumph over their hatred. Those ISIS barbarians were right to title their video a message written to the people of the cross. Because the cro we hold up the cross as our symbol as a way of saying we're not afraid. Look what our Savior went through out of love for me. He gave his life for me. And he forgave his enemies, even you. That's what the cross means. 
The way of Jesus is greater than the way of jihad. Divine love and forgiveness are greater than man's hatred and terror. So understand, every act of love, every confession of faith is a knife, a dagger in the heart of ISIS. Those martyrs deserve our unwavering support. In his book, Moore tells of a young nun in Mosul named Sister Rose, who's poured her life into, the, into caring for the refugees as they flee from city to city to survive the ISIS onslaught. She cares for the children she finds in abandoned buildings, the people hiding in caves and trenches along the road. And Sister Rose's life is heroic. She's a Catholic nun, just this beautiful testimony that the love of Jesus is greater than the hate of jihad. And in the book, Sister Rose said these words. She said, I lived in America, and Americans are wonderful people, but it's shocking to me that they are so silent in the face of our genocide. Please help us. Raise your voice for us. Our children are dying. In America, you care for your pets so well. Can you care for your Christian brothers and sisters who are suffering? Friends, this is our wake-up call. This is a wake-up call for the church. Don't let the blessing of living in a free nation with freedom of worship be taken for granted. Don't let the relative comfort of our Western cocoon let you just kind of fall asleep and stay asleep. It is time to wake the slumbering giant of the church. Wake up. Get our head out of the sand and stand up and speak up and be a voice for the voiceless. Say, actually, I am an. I am a follower of the Luminous Nazarene. I am a Christian and Christ follower. And I stand in solidarity with my brothers and sisters in the Middle East. Don't be PC politically correct. Be PC, people of the cross, unintimidated, unashamed in defense of our family who die daily and deserve our prayers and support in their hour of need. Bonhoeffer said, silence in the face of evil is evil itself. We must speak up. Speak up boldly with moral clarity and courage in our generation. So you get ready to stand up. You get ready to speak up. That's what Johnny Moore is going to teach us to do next week. Today, I want to close this service by doing the most powerful thing we can do as people of the cross. I want to pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And this week, here's my challenge to you. Every time you watch the news, you open a newspaper, you look at your news feed on the computer, and you hear ISIS mentioned. I want you to get out of your chair and actually get down on your knees and pray. Pray for your brothers and sisters in Iraq and Syria, that God would not only protect them, but strengthen them in this time of testing. And to show our public support for them today, what I want to do is have every person here stand up right where you are and hold hands with the person on either side of you. Go ahead, stand up every campus right now. Reach across, grab the hand of the person on your right and on your left. If you're on the side of an aisle, get the person behind you. And I want you to hold their hand as we join for prayer. Go ahead, cross aisles. Let's bow our heads right now. And as your heads are bowed, you're holding hands in solidarity with our brothers and sisters in the Middle East. If you're a woman, I want you to imagine you're holding the hand of a mother in Iraq or a child in Syria. Or if you're a man, you're holding hands with those martyrs on the beaches. And we're praying to our Father in heaven together. Our Father is a Father of great love and justice. Father in heaven, we pray to you right now in the name of Jesus and we declare that you are a God of great mercy and justice. So in your mercy, would you protect right now your people in Iraq and Syria who are suffering today? 
Surround them right now as they deal with persecution will never taste. Protect them by the blood and name of Jesus. Let them feel your closeness and the Spirit strengthening them. And at this moment, God, we ask boldly for justice. God, we cry out that the evil of ISIS would be stopped in its tracks. That in the name of Jesus, we ask that you'd stop these wicked men and frustrate their plans and schemes. We ask you to rescue your people. God, some trust in swords and tanks and, and bombs, but our, our trust is in Lord God Almighty. Our strength is in you. So save and rescue them according to your will. Let us see ways that we can serve them in their moment of need. May we lift our crosses higher together so the world will see and know that there is forgiveness and salvation in the name of Jesus Christ alone. We pray this as your people, the people of the cross. And all the people said together, amen.